Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. Matt and I have a great guest today, someone we've been hunting down for, I would say, well over a year, and that is Mr. Lee Gray. Lee, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, tell the listeners a little bit of who you are, what you do, and then we'll proceed to talk about some really interesting stuff that we've put together today. I've only been here for, it'll be a year on Wednesday, so it hasn't been quite over a year. Well, it feels like a long time. It does feel <laughs> I feel like, like we've been chasing you for a long time. Yes, certainly. <laughs> I know Matt has. Well, my name is Lee Grace. So I'm the support services manager here at AES. Uh, as I say, I joined about a year ago, started my career off as a mud engineer in the North Sea and was given an opportunity to move to the States as part of a tech services group and pretty much been doing reservoir drilling fluids and formation damage, fill cake breakers for going on eight years now, back where Matt and I met each other. So a lot of my experience has been on that side of things. And I guess that's why Matt's been hunting me down to come on here and maybe talk a little bit about formation damage. Right. Well, so it seems like he hasn't only been hunting you to come on the podcast, but he hunted you down to come on board with AES. And so I'm curious if we back up, you know, rewind to the time where you met Matt for the first time, I'm eager to know what was your first impressions of Matt? Can you please describe? I think my first recollection was Matt was in Azerbaijan at the time and sent me a long-winded email for a project he wanted to do. And I'd never heard of who this Matt Offenbacher guy was. And, you know, he's basically just telling me to do things in the lab. So I must say it wasn't fun memories. <laughs> I don't really interest. I, like, I mean, I, I remember being in Azerbaijan and bugging the tech service group, but I didn't know we'd, we'd exchanged emails then because I, I must have moved to the States not long after that. I think it was fairly soon after that. I remember it well. It was some solid free pill or something along those lines. But yeah, I just remember, I remember the name. It's, a, it's, an, it's not a hard name to forget. That's right. And so where were you working out of at the time? Because you weren't in Azerbaijan, were you or were you as well? I was in Houston. I just moved here to Houston. I was fairly new. I'd been here maybe a month or two. Ah, interesting. Okay. So what about the younger years? So where are you from originally and, and how did you get into oil and gas? So originally born in Germany, raised as an army brat, I guess, before ending up in Aberdeen through my dad. Oh, I ended up in Scotland through my dad. So I went to college in Edinburgh while he moved up to Aberdeen, graduated with my degree in mathematics of all things, ended up asking my dad one day, are there any jobs going in, in the oil field? This was back in 2006. So I went around a few different divisions within the company and then for some reason decided that mud engineering sounded like a great thing to go and do as a career. So ended up going to Dubai to do my mud school, which is a little different to what most people do. So I spent six weeks over there and then ended up going offshore pretty much straight. As soon as I got back, spent my first Christmas offshore. Yeah, I was spent four years in the North Sea doing that before moving to the States. I've been here ever since. Which is yeah. more depressing, Aberdeen or the North Sea? Aberdeen. I've agreed. 
That's funny. It's it's interesting you say that you spent your first, you know, when you were offshore you know, at the beginning of your career, you spent Christmas out there, Matt and I, we just obviously released an episode over Christmas there a few weeks back. And, and again, you know, we wanted to really highlight how much the company and, and just everyone in the oil field, how much we appreciate the sacrifice being made. But tell us a little bit about your first Christmas offshore. Was it kind of a self-reflecting moment of where and why did I do what I'm doing? Or were you kind of just you're okay with it. You knew it was going to happen. I mean, cause it's kind of a, I know for me, it was sort of a breaking moment in my career when I was spending the first holiday away from family and friends. It's kind of, it was a bit of a head scratcher, but what was it like for you? I remember it well, cause it was a disaster. Oh, <laughs> okay. I was a third, you know, a third man, I guess, working nights and being woken up on, I think it was on Christmas day, being woken up and, you know, at midnight because, or lunchtime, I guess it was just everything going wrong. And that was when I just started thinking, why, why am I out here? What am I doing? You know, covered in water-based mud and, you know, with squeegees in the pit room and just thinking, why am I here? What have I gotten myself into? No kidding. Well, it obviously wasn't enough to deter you from pursuing a career in drilling fluids. So I congratulate you. That's good stuff. So, you know, it's, it's interesting and you referenced a lot of your career has been in reservoir drilling fluids and, and formation damage. That's, what we're going to discuss today. And so right out of the gate, I think a lot of people, especially drilling fluids engineers or mud engineers at the field level, it's not something that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And if it is, you know, it's just not very common or perhaps it's a specialty product, but from your perspective, how would you describe formation damage from a drilling fluid perspective? (laughs) I'd give you a long winded answer or short ones, but, uh, We've got time. It's I okay. mean, basically, you know, I think everyone knows that as soon as you start drilling, you're creating damage. I mean, that's just pretty much a given. The reason we don't, I mean, over here at US land, we don't see much of it it's based on the completion type. You know, it's primarily open hole completions. Matt and I have both been involved in, you know, discussions about are you fracking past damage? Are you, you know, stimulating past that damage that you're creating from the drilling process? And it's always an interesting argument to get into when you get into that side of things. And I think Matt knows what I'm talking about when I, when I mention some of those projects. Well, I want to pause there because there's a lot, sort of some smiling and, and I can tell there's some sort of inside humor going on here. So please, please enlighten me in a politically correct way. Cause I'm still trying to figure that out. Cause I, every time we talk formation damage, it's always kind of like, Oh well, geez, here we go. <laughs> probably about four months into me moving to Houston is when I got my first kind of real project was my boss said here is a big return permeability project that, you know, has been going on for a little while. I want you to take over this and oversee things. I've never heard of return permeability. I never knew what formation damage was. So it was really a, you know, learn on the fly type deal. So I used to go up to Canada quite often, the East coast of Canada. Mm. And we used to do, I mean, I lost count how many return perm tests we used to do for, with this customer and it was just constant, you know, building fluids, having them tested, change, tweaking little things. And, you know, these aren't cheap tests. So we used to go up there and we ended up, everything's on formation damage and, you know, minimizing how much damage you do. And then we, then we started learning, you know, we're fracking pat, you know, there was, I don't know how many wells they fracked up there, but there was always a discussion with the reservoir team up there with, can you frack past this damage or can you, perforate past this damage i forget what they used to do matt but you know we used to have a 
a lot of discussions with the was was he a production engineer out there? No, you know, just based on are we? It was just a how far are we fracking into the formation? How far are we perforating into the formation? It was just it went on and on, and I think we spent two or three years doing that. Okay, yeah, it took a while, and it was. I mean, it, it's just interesting because like you basically get into the infinite unknown, the level of detail and questions where it was like, well, I don't know, is it, is it well producing because producing i don't i think we're we don't care but i think there were concerns about just the fundamental concepts and everything required a test and as lee alluded to you know formation damage tests or return perm tests you know the cheapest ones you could run are probably what three thousand dollars but these were like 12 you know they had elaborate processes in them they had a bunch of other things and you know think about running one of those every week for three years or something is how it felt i mean it was just wow constant and you were responsible for traveling up there lee to do these tests the tests were run here we did everything based out of houston oh okay a third party lab but we used to make regular trips up there just to basically go through the results and you know trying to explain why things are happening what's going on in the test you know why there's just there's a lot of different nooks and crannies to return perm testing that you know it's even i was learning on the i was you know, I've spent eight years doing it and I still, I still wouldn't say I know everything that goes on in these tests. Wow. Well, yeah, I, I mean, he was going to East Canada, right? Like St. John's is a weird place. Is it? So to have to keep going back there, it's just, it's, a, it's the edge of the world. To, well, I, I, and I think that's interesting because even, you know, being from Canada, I've really just spent most of my time. Actually, I've never spent any time on the East coast. The, for the closest I've gotten to Eastern Canada was in Pittsburgh, which obviously is quite a bit different than St. John's, but I'm interested to hear how, how would you describe Eastern Canada? Cause I think most of the folks listening on left, they've worked new, I think it was it new Hibernia. That's the play out there. Or anyway, there's, there's an offshore play out in Eastern Canada, but most of the folks that are listening are probably, if they work in Canada, it's been Alberta, Saskatchewan, maybe Manitoba and then Northeastern British Columbia. But, but how would you describe Eastern Canada where you were at? Cause I think it's fairly interesting because it is a, has an oil field history. I remember the first time I landed in, I think I flew through Montreal the first time to get there. And the customs agents, first thing he told me was that it was, I think St. John's has the highest number of bars per <laughs> cap or something. When I, la- I just thought it was a very interesting thing to, to find out. Everyone jokes about going up. But I always enjoyed going up there. You know, the people were always great. And I always had a good time. The weather was less so great when I went I used to <laughs> okay some for some reason I used to end up going up there in in the winter time but that was probably my fault yeah I mean we always joke about going up but man I went up a few times together and I think we always we always enjoyed going up there meeting the people and you know me, especially meeting the guys that we used to work with in person was always great yeah I mean I would say that's the, the people are fantastic but it's just such a depressing place it's <laughs> weather is terrible everything's just you know, it's like a fishing town with a little bit of oil field. Yeah. It, it's a very strange place. And, and people are like, oh, if you leave and you're like, what do you mean? They're like, but flights get canceled. It's always fogged in. Yeah. Like, it's just the weather's terrible. And you're just like, oh, man, what a brutal existence. Yeah. Like just hearing it and, and seeing pictures. I actually, when I was working for a drilling contractor early on in my career, there was a gentleman I worked with from St. John's and he was certainly a little different, but it just, it seemed like a fun place, but just wet and dry all the time. Like 
nothing in between. So like you said, the weather would probably be not the highlight, but interesting adventures nonetheless, and one that not very many people get to experience, but bringing it back to formation damage and formation damage testing, you kind of went into it, but I'd like to dive into it a little further. What is formation damage testing? Can you elaborate on on exactly what it is you're testing for and how, and really how you go about doing those types of tests? I mean, basically you're taking a core plug of, you would like it to be of the reservoir you're looking at, but you know, as Matt can attest to, those are very hard to get. So typically we just use a generic type of formation. Berea is one of the more common formations we use. So we would get a core plug cut, typically one and a half inch in diameter by maybe one and a half inch length. You're going to apply a confining pressure inside of a Hassler cell of a, you know, depending on, it all depends on what your back pressure is, what your pore pressure you're looking at. So it's all back calculated from this. And then you're basically going to, subject that core to a so basically you take the core plug you'll saturate the core plug in whatever your formation brine you typically think it is some cases you just use what three percent kcl then you would put this into the return perm unit basically into a hassler cell apply your confining pressure and then flow back flow through typically mineral oil I've done it with crude oil in the past. Usually takes a special set, you know, a special lab to be able to do that, just, you know, handling crude and disposing away at the end. So typically you would use just a mineral oil. You're going to get your, basically your parameters, your permeability, which is calculated based on the flow rate and then your differential pressure. Subject that core plug to a oil-based, water-based mug, whichever one you're looking at testing with. You can do these dynamic, static, a combination of both. I think you can basically, you can adjust tests to make it as difficult or as easy as you want to pass. You know, if you do it for an hour versus 16 hours, it's going to be completely different. Then ultimately, once you've done that, you're going to basically flow back the same fluid at the same flow rates after the test. You compare the permeability you get before and after, and you calculate your percentage. Which I okay. guess is the the most simplified the most simplified of return perm tests. So the question you're trying to answer is, what type of you know if if I'm using this fluid, what kind of formation damage is occurring, or afterwards perhaps this is the fluid we used, and and what can we expect? It's it's really trying to answer what the fluid is. Yeah, like uh, what flow restriction did I introduce? Is is I think a good way to describe yeah. it. So you know, okay. you flow your oil th- mineral oil through a core, and you say, okay, well unrestricted that I can pass this oil through at this rate. And you consider that your like baseline, quote unquote, undamaged, whatever, circulate some mud across it for a while, and then try and flow back as if you're bringing the well on production. Uh, so you flow through the other direction and see, you know, the cake should lift off or come off a little bit, disperse, and you're going to get another flow rate. And hopefully if the two flow rates are the same, that's a hundred percent return perm or no damage. Right. I got you. It's sort of the argument. However, you know, everybody says, oh, a bigger number is better, which that's partially true. There's, there's other things to think about, you know, and I think to Lee's point, the, the procedures are all over the place. I think that's part of sort of <laughs> our gripe is Lee kind of has a smirk on his face when he's like, yeah, well, what number do you want? Like, I, if you tell me, was it you were dealing with some folks in Columbia, was it right, Lee? And they were like, if you can get us above 90% return firm, the work is yours. And it was like, Lee was like, well, I can do that. Just don't ask me how I'm going to do it. 
<laughs> but it, it, it was totally irrelevant to the testing, but it was this fixation on the result. Ah, I see. And which it, it's interesting because I do want to sort of get into some of the limitations into doing these types of tests. But in my career, I haven't been involved with doing any of these. Now, granted, I haven't been in tech services specifically as a role within you know, AES, but it seems like this doesn't necessarily apply to every well, you know, all the time. And so I'm curious, when, when would this actually apply to what we do? So, I mean, I'll, I'll jump in on this one just because, you know, so some of the work we've done on the Gulf Coast has been what are called open hole completions, where I don't case it off and cement it. I actually put what are called sand control screens down and I bring the well on production. And it's because the flow is so prolific that if you perforated, you wouldn't get as much flow area and you'd have very high velocity at those holes in the casing and you bring on sand or you start producing sand back with everything else because the sand is loose. It's not consolidated. So a lot of really big prolific wells and, you know, certain areas, we, it's more conventional production, right? Unconventional is you can actually do these kinds of tests. The problem is the reason we frack it is because the permeability of this stuff is like the same as cement. So you have to have way more sensitive equipment. And the, the argument is we're not even doing that. What we do is we frack the wells, we break up the rock, any mud residue that we could have, you know, blocking things doesn't make a difference because I'm going to break it down. That being said, you could still damage an unconventional reservoir. And if you talk to some of the stimulation folks, I think this is one area where there's a huge gap is if you think about the sheer volumes of chemicals you pump when you frack, a lot of, it's always got to be really cheap, you know, because it's such a huge volume, but I don't think that very much science is put behind how that actually could affect the rock. And so there may be more oil to be had if, you know, some of these folks came together and kind of talked it out, but there are really prolific areas. I mean, especially on the Gulf coast, along the Gulf coast and certainly all over the world where this type of testing applies, people spend a lot of money trying to make sure that they're going to maximize their production. And so it's just funny. Lee and I always talk. I want to have him on the podcast to talk more about this stuff just because it's nobody seems to get it. And a lot of people seem to thrive in the gray area. And, you know, so we sort of laugh when we see certain claims made just because it's like, well, I could I could make the exact opposite claim and I wouldn't technically be wrong without, you know, without details. Well, let's dive a little deeper into that. I mean, why is there sort of this unknown gray area? Is it is it because it's just not commonly practiced to where there's a loss in translation or there's gaps in an experience or can you speak a little further on it as to why as an industry it is such a gray area if you will i don't know how long ago it was that they've tried to they tried to standardize return firm testing they just found that it's just not possible i mean the different procedures i mean there's different pieces of equipment you know different manufacturers make different pieces of equipment some places have their own in-house built units just I think that one these of units the, cost like $200,000 to make. So if you have one, you're not getting another one because API yeah. said you need to buy a new one. To yeah. Our okay. I think it was, it was attempted to standardize. I forget how many years ago, but you know, a number of different fluids, the same fluids were sent to a number of different facilities, same procedures. And, you know, and I think they all came back with different results. It's just, it's just always been something that it's been so hard to figure out why, why it's so hard to standardize this test, but, you know, essentially you just, and then, I mean, if you could even run the same, I think you probably get two different, two different people to run the same test on the same piece of equipment may get a different, a slightly different result as well. It's just, you know, that each core plug's different. 
reacts differently, different pore size, different pore throat sizes. It's just a strange test that for something that's so expensive, you know, the units are so expensive and a lot of money is, ba- is you know, there's a lot of money riding on the answer you're giving customers. Yeah. For something, as you say, is a gray area. No kidding. So that really ties into the next topic, which we've been that we're on right now is it's just the problems or perhaps the limitations that really need to be considered because there are what it sounds like no real standardized procedures or really guidelines to, I'm sure there's guidelines, but like you said, a lot of this can be altered depending on <laughs> what the there is a really wants. good paper that summarizes this. But what, Lee, how, how would you describe this document? That was, I think uh, in, industry defining. I industry think. defining paper that may or may not have been written by Lee and myself. <laughs> we, but that's always our lead in. Like, there is actually an industry defining document that could really guide the world into, and it's it's a paper that was written like eight years ago. But nice, you know, okay. we try and summarize what I think the industry sort of in general sees as the best practices. But yeah. people are still all over the place. Interesting. Are, are there any like, other tell problems? Tell us more about that, Lee. Yeah. Yeah, um, Lee. No, yeah. Let's, let's dive into that further. So that one was, everyone runs the, you know, you run a, a simple return perm test. As Matt said, you know, you flow it back after you've done, you've damaged the core. You take that number, whatever it is, 60%, 70% return, and that's it. You're finished. So we took, we went away and, you know, we basically used to do a lot of testing on, different steps after that. So we were trying to determine, you know, is your damage due to external filter cake? Is it due to the internal filter cake? Is it near wellbore damage? Is it, you know, further into the core, like, you know, phase trapping, we used to call, we used to have a, a joke about that, that one a lot. But so we basically wrote a paper on all the, you know, all the testing we'd done. So we would basically take our, after we've got that initial number back, that return, we would take the core plug out, you know, we would scrape the filler kit would be, you know, manually scraped off there, reloaded. And then we would basically run crude oil back then in the production direction and see what the difference was. So you could see a jump from 60% to 80%, 90%. So then you could basically say, Oh, you know, that bridging package or external filler cake is that's my damage mechanism. You can take it a step further and slice a quarter of an inch off the wellbore side of that core plug, repeat that step where you're flowing in the production direction. And then finally you would take it out, centrifuge the core plug back down to irreducible water saturation or as close to without exceeding the pressure that you had when you first centrifuge that core after you're saturate, after you saturate in the brine, before you run the test, you centrifuge that down to irreducible water saturation you don't want to exceed that pressure but then we basically put the core plug back in after this final step and that's usually where you would see your your largest jump so you're basically removing anything out there that we used to say phase trapped but that couldn't be removed at the pressures or flow rate that you're using in in your return perm test which are typically you know know, one two three mils per minute so not high not high pressures we basically took that and we would get the return perm percentage at each step. You know, you'd start 60%, 65%, 70%, and then make it typically you get that giant leap at the end to saw sort of 98%. So we would all, you know, that was the running joke was everything was face trapping at that point. 
you know, then the argument, you know, when you bring these wells on that initial drawdown, are you removing, is there enough pressure when you, when you initially draw down these wells to remove that phase trapping, you know, that this occurred in your return perm test? Yeah. I mean, keep in mind that all that stuff, that liquid that came from the mud is between you and your oil, right? And so if it stays there, oil has less of a path to get there. And so, you know, that's, that's a big challenge. And I think intuitively people think like, Hey, I have to have, I need to get all of it back. Right. Like this is money on the table, but that's not really how it works either. Where let's say you have a 500 millidarcy core. Well, 500 millidarcy is this huge amount of flow area. If I only get 50% of that, or I, I return perm 50%, that's still 250 millidarcies, depending on how much, you know, what flow rate I expect to bring the well on and that sort of thing. That might not be that bad. But in a well where, you know, losing half of your permeability or your flow area and you didn't have much to begin with, that could be devastating. And so, you know, the obsession is, can I get to 100%? And I think, you know, Lee spends a lot of time saying, well, okay, first of all, let's figure out what was the damage mechanism. Why did, you know, why did we damage it? Can we fix it? Can we change the mud, you know, the mud composition to get rid of it? And I mean you know, the funny thing is doing what we do now, where we assume we're going to, you know, frack past everything. Lee gets to play with all this really dirty stuff that, you know, you, you always wanted to have in your back pocket that you could acidize and you could remove some of any, anything you left behind, you could hopefully get rid of. And the thing now is Lee gets to, you know, all this stuff that was untouchable now is like, do whatever you want. Nobody cares. And so it's a totally different environment when you know, you're going to frack the well. And anyways, I don't know, Lee, what, why don't you comment on some of your experience with that, where it's like, okay, I don't care about formation damage nearly as much as I used to. Is it weird to have all these products at your disposal again? Yeah, I was, I think, so one of my first projects was, you know, coming up with the water-based mud and I went into the lab and usually I'm limited to four or five different products that you can throw into this, you know, xanthan, starch, calcium carbonate, a couple other different things, but here I was looking around and I'm just seeing all these different products. I can pretty much throw whatever I want into this mud. And it's almost hard. It's harder to take a step back and think, right, I should probably limit this. I don't want to have, you know, 13, 14 products going into this fluid just because I can. But it was just, it was a whole new way of thinking about things, you know, going from clean white RDFs to now I'm making, you know, black water-based mud. And it would, that would have been, you know, unthinkable a lot of my previous roles is just it's just been a complete change i'm sure and it's yeah now you get a little bit more creative control which i'm sure is nice oh, ability yeah. to spend a bunch of money well, actually rdf is already <laughs> probably more expensive but oh, oh no, no. Those, are, those are obscenely expensive we, we got to spend less money on the drilling fluid but on the uh, r&d and everything you can have more fun yeah, yeah this is this is going is that's another change just back you know rdfs and things because they're so you know that people pretty much spend, you know, a lot of money spent on those things and money was really, or cost when you're developing them was, was, you know, rarely questioned, but it's, it's yeah. a lot different on this side. I'm sure. I'm curious on some of the pre-screening stuff that you would do before formation damage testing. Can you speak a little bit about that? Like base fluid compatibility and things of that nature? I mean, you do a lot of, you know, compatibility testing, jar testing, like you do with a lot, I mean, that's not really just for formation damage. You know, you get your, I know Matt's written quite a few documents on, on the, all the testing parameters and test procedures that you go through for, for reservoir drilling fluids. But, you know, the main thing that I used to look at 
was, you know, we mentioned that return perm testing gets, you know, it's pretty expensive depending on how many stages you're doing. So we used to do a lot of, they call it flowback test or flow through tests back in our previous life. Our old boss, we used to call it the Leister tester after our old boss, Mark Leister. Because it, it leaked a whole lot. It had a really, like, it had a digital gauge that, like, sometimes worked. Okay. And, like, you set up your test. And these tests take, like, five days. And you rig it up to this thing. And you're yeah. trying to get your number. And you're, like, fingers crossed. I didn't screw anything up. I don't have to start over again. Yeah. And you're using Mark's apparatus where you're just like, oh, no, what's going to break? Yeah. <laughs> So we used to use, you know, we basically run a 16-hour fluid loss on an aloxide disc, so a ceramic disc of known pore size. And then you could either flow that back or you could apply a breaker. And, you know, as Matt said, this could take five days. So you're leaving a breaker in there for five days before you're flowing it back. And it's essentially a cheaper and easier, faster way of doing a return perm, you know, of screening for return perm testing. So you're going to Take this aloxide disc beforehand. You're going to flow water or oil through this aloxide disc. You know, we used to flow what 200 mils three or four times, and with a stopwatch, and calculate that as our return to flow. And you know, calculate our return to flow. I've heard it called a return perm test. No, times, and it's, it could yeah. be any further from a return perm test. <laughs> You just, you're basically just using, you know, you test a number of different fluids or in, mostly in our case, it was a number of th- different breakers. You'd run them on this, you know, paint can or flow through tester and take your best option and then step it up to return perm. Just rather than spending an absorbent about money on, you know, tweaking little things here and there on different return perms and even just getting a, a slot on one of these machines can be difficult because they, you know, they take so long, you know, especially if you're, Going up to a higher temperature, that take you got to wait for it to heat up, cool down, and taking it apart. If something goes wrong, then you're set back for you know an extra week or so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these tests. That's a really good point, Leah. I mean, these tests. They're really expensive. You know, the pre-screening part. I think it's in some ways like some of these elaborate shale tests. They hear people talk about. It's like make sure you've got the right candidate fluid before you even get started, because this is going to get expensive if you just try stuff and have to make changes. So if you can identify the little things that could go wrong before it's actually showtime, you know, I remember we had one where it was a heavy mud. It was for the Gulf of Mexico. And I think it was a 12 and a half pound, 13 pound mud. And it was Bay Riley. It was a producer. I was, it was the only way to do it affordably. I think Lee was actually at a different company at that time bidding against me on this work. And I was like, let's do it. Like, this is a cheap yet feasible way to do this. And the problem was the time it took to heat everything up with a lab mud, you know, we've talked about how shear is really important to suspend the bayrite and that sort of thing. The lab mud heating up in the cell was causing the bayrite to fall out and it was settling on the core face and giving these really horrible numbers. And so I basically, you know, then you have a huge meeting. How do you, could you screw up this badly on our big test and blah, blah, blah. And I isolated it and I basically said, look, I can't replicate a field mud for you, you know, and what we're going to do. So we've actually made the fluid extra thick so that the bayrite couldn't settle out as quickly for the purposes of the test saying you wouldn't drill with this an eight and a half inch hole, but I need the bayrite to stay in solution for us to run this test. And it's taking too long for the core to heat up. Anyways, then I went from, I went from like 40% to over 90 and, you know, 
the rest is history kind of thing. But it was just, even these little things can become huge headaches. And going back to just how frustrating it is that you got to educate the customer and how this works. They can get really bad advice from other people. There's Lee's favorite lab in Western Australia where it was just like, you guys must be drilling on Neptune. Like this has nothing to do with anything. And yet they were the only lab anybody trusted. And every single failure you had to go get on a call and write, that doesn't make any sense. Change your procedure, do it again. Mm. It's miserable. So I don't know if we have to title this one, why Lee and Matt hate formation damage testing, but it (laughs) it seems to be part of the content. Right. Well, yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of, you know, obviously we can get as really deep into the weeds and technical, but, you know, in the respect of time and for the purpose of the podcast, I think we've done a great job. And if anyone out there has any questions and really wants to get nitty gritty with it, Lee would be happy to talk to you about that. But for both of you, I just, you know, want to sort of slowly wrap things up by asking, I mean, if someone out there is, whether they're a lab tech or someone's been asked to do this kind of stuff, what are some, just some really important considerations and notes to take away from to, to help guide them into at least getting some quality type results? I mean, I think, but Lee, would you start with, you need to agree on a procedure that makes sense, right? I mean, like understand what the goal is of the test. Would you, would you agree? Yeah. I mean, it even comes down to, I mean, we haven't mentioned it previously, but it even comes down to something so simple as the spacer ring that you're placing mm-hmm. on top of that core plug. You know, we mentioned that you're circling this fluid across this core plug. So you're basically going down one piece of tubing across a core face and back up. But basically, you've got a, you have to have a space on top of that core plug for a filter cake to be deposited. And depending on how large that space ring is, you know, whether it's what, I think the largest we used to use, what, nine millimeters down to, uh, say, four, four millimeters, something like that. Basically, whatever the size of that, spacering is is generally going to be the size of your fillet the thickness of your fillet cake so even just adjusting something so small like as a spacer ring can have an impact on your test and it's something that people need to be aware of you know like matt said agreeing on a procedure and even down to those little details is important there's literature out there it's confusing but understanding the procedure understanding what your objective is but it's understanding the limitations of whatever you include in the procedure. Almost everything is a trade-off, but Lee, you mentioned, you know, net confining stress or how much pressure do you put on the core around the sleeve? Right. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people say, look, I want it exactly how it is down hole. Right. Well, if you've used 3000 PSI of net confining stress on a rock, you would probably crush it and you wouldn't get reliable results, but that may be what, it, what it, the core is experiencing down hole. You just need something that's good enough so nothing's going to move or leak around the sleeve, really. And typically, it's all, you know, they take into account the, as like the back, you know, your back pressure or core pressure. And, you know, your confining pressure has to be, if you start increasing those, then you have to increase your confining pressure. So it's, it's never really a what is it downhole type deal with it when it comes to that side of things. Like Matt said, it's what's going to stop fluid going around the side of my core plug. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, and, and understanding, okay, this is a sophisticated test. It's as, as good as you're going to get, but it's not without its limitations and you need to know the goal and agree on a procedure. And most of the people who are actually making the decisions are about as knowledgeable as it's a drilling engineer level. Because the other thing is nobody really knows. Sometimes completion takes over drilling the reservoir if it's an open hole, but they don't know anything about drilling. They're mostly focused on installing the completion. Well, if it's a drilling person, 
they don't know anything about completions. And so many times you're trying to like have one foot in, in on one side and one foot in the other. They might not get along as well as you could hope for. And you're trying to draw all these principles in like, I need to get you a good test, but let's make sure this all makes sense. And they're used to dealing with a bunch of other vendors. Like they really just want to get through this, but they also know they've got to have a successful well. So mm-hmm. okay. like making sense of making sense of the procedure. And, and unfortunately, I think most people like just get me a number and there's a way to do that with integrity. And there's a way to do that to, you know, get a good number. Right. And that's, you know, unfortunately, we'd like to get a good number and do it with integrity. But that comes down to a very murky set of circumstances, which I don't know, sort of made us appear worthwhile, at least for long enough. Sure. So (laughs) what I think the number is interesting to touch on real quick, because just in my mind, you know, you say, oh, we got 50% damage or 60% damage. One could easily assume like, oh, well, if I have 60% damage, does that mean I have 60% less production? I mean, can you sort of elaborate on how you connect that result to what, I mean, you might actually see if, if you understand what I'm asking? Yeah, I mean, I think Richard Hodge, Conoco actually did a really good job. I don't tend to name names, but Conoco did an excellent job of really getting an understanding of open hole completions. You know, when these were really started to head in their, in their heyday and Bob Burton and Richard Hodge, I think are both retired did a lot of work on basically explaining, I think, I don't want to take, you know, put words in his mouth, but if I recall correctly, I think Richard Hodge was saying like, if you had 70% return perm, there's absolutely no flow restrictions in your production. Like something else will restrict the flow of your fluid. It, it might be your production tubing because that's going to have a friction to it. It might be something else, but you're not actually harming production whatsoever. And then you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's this percent damage. Therefore, I'm creating this kind of problem. And it's like only if I'm producing at that flow rate right. all the time. And it's sort of weird too, but like Lee alluded to, a lot of these wells clean up. Like you're only flowing this back for a little while and you're trying to understand how much of it does clean up. But there's no way for us to prove to you that it will, but they generally do. And so 50% might be what you show in the lab and it may clean up where they call it skin damage, where you've got a zero skin, which is nothing. And we, we see that all the time. So understanding what you actually need, because we do get run into folks like 70 or 80% is generally a very good number. I mean, wouldn't you agree, Lee? I've even heard some sensible people say that we get, you know, ask for a 60%. Those are few and far between, but you know, it like Matt said, this it simply doesn't mean that you know you're you get sixty percent return per means that you're getting forty percent less oil from your reservoir. That's certainly not that. That's certainly not the case. Okay. And I think I've even done you know going back to Eastern Canada. You know we did all this return perm testing. We were also lucky enough to be involved, and in, we got a lot of data that showed they had tracers in their inflow control devices done down in the well and we saw you know how well these things you know how these wells could clean up you know and when you know when different areas would clean up at different points but you know it was really eye-opening to me because i you know kind of first starting out in the whole formation damage side but seeing that my 60 70 percent return perm was still showing that you know these wells were still producing or you know coming online when they were supposed to and you know everything was looking good from that side of things but you don't you don't get to see that Product that some of that data a lot. That was certainly probably one of the only times I ever saw it. 
that was absolutely fascinating. I remember that. And then basically just to add a little bit of context to that. So you basically break up your, your production interval into sections with swell packers and all of the oil can only flow through these, these nozzles by section. And you have these tracers or material that solubilizes an oil in each separate section. And then it goes into the oil. So at surface, you can see what rate you're producing and where it's coming from in these sections of the well. And it was crazy because Lee could, I mean, you know, the graphs, you could actually see this part of the well came on at this point, this part of the well is starting to produce. And it's just over time, the formation was cleaning up. So it was just, it's a really fat, like, I really wish the, all those people would like get together, have a few beers and like publish more data like that because it's out there, but I don't know who's, I don't know who's sharing it just because it's, it's fascinating from a big picture perspective. Interesting. Huh. Well, if anyone's listening, who's been a part of that or has something, let us know. Cause obviously Matt and Lee would love to look at it and perhaps First have a beer and us. discuss it. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. Well, I want to ask a couple of questions, you know, to lighten things up and we, we dove pretty deep here, but again, you guys have a very interesting dynamic and have worked together and share a lot of, you know, inside good humor, but I'm interested, Matt, what's your, I guess, a most colorful, experience or memory of working with Lee over the years? Does, does anything come to mind? Stories I can repeat on a recording. <laughs> I mean, it, it's sort of weird because like, I don't know, I don't know how new, I mean, Lee, I've been in the States long and it was right when I moved back and it was, you know, it was always the little things of like, you know, back in the day, having our morning coffee together and shooting the breeze. And it, it was sort of funny because Everybody walked by, as soon as we talked for like an hour, it was like, aren't you guys supposed to be working or something? <laughs> but I think I learned the most about a lot of things just from those sort of like conversations or, you know, Lee, you know, having a Scottish guy call me cheap or, you know, all, all of those sort of <laughs> little things, you know, but it's just, it's really fun to work with somebody who's really, really good at what they do. but you know, he has an ego about other things. I don't think he has an ego about, about the stuff he's, he's really good at. <laughs> so it's just that. And it's, it's sort of ironic to me because we've been so fortunate at AES, you know, Lee becoming part of our team was never necessarily something that, you know, I didn't even think it was possible. It hadn't, it hadn't really crossed my mind, but at the same time, like if you make a list of, the people I respect the most professionally, if I had to make that list, as far as drilling fluids go, Lee was on that list. He was one of the best there is at what he does. And so it's sort of surreal to me to be working with guys like Lee and guys like Ricky, and I'm not trying to sell anybody else shorts. If you don't hear your name, don't get upset. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm just saying like, it's just, it's so much fun to work with these guys because the creative process involves making fun of each other along with, you know, laughing about things, but also like, Hey man, when we did this, let's yeah. try this. Or, Oh, I have an idea. And so right. you, know, you get a few of us hanging in Lee's office and there's just all this cool stuff going on around. And I'm never afraid that we can't make it happen. You know, I'm more confident in my, in my own work because of the people I'm working with. Yeah, no. And that, that's interesting because, you know, it's one of those where everyone's sort of come up the ranks at the same time. You know, I'm sure back in the day, you know, you guys remember working through problems and 
probably somewhat complaining about upper management not doing the right thing or taking their time or you know you can look back and think oh I remember back in the day and and now here you are you know you were working together and you split off and now you're back together and and now you're in those positions where the people working under you you know hopefully are complimenting you guys but it's sometimes you know the roles are reversed and to be able to move up and be in a position now with an AES that the things that perhaps you felt you were limited on or didn't quite get the ability to do to, in order to move the needle. Now you guys have the control so you guys can you know, join forces and make things happen, which is really cool. And it, it's, it's neat sort of from the outside looking in to see the history of you know, the team downstairs on floor one. And now you know, for us to develop, whether it's products or you know, interesting technology and everything else that we've been delivering. So it, it, it's cool and, and it's exciting to see. And, and Lee, what, what would you say? I mean, anything about Matt that you'd like to compliment Tom? Because now is your chance to put it out in the, in the I really you know, try to, to set that up so you say something nicely. Yeah. You mentioned Ricky. And I remember when Ricky, well, because Ricky used to work for Matt previously before and then came back and started working for Matt here. And I always said to Ricky, I'll never work for Matt. I don't think I could ever work for Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I say that all the time. <laughs> and here I am. So, yeah. you know, yeah. I certainly thought I would be a, you know, I learned a lot even from my reservoir drilling fluid days. You know, I thought that's what I'd always be doing. And I learned a lot from Matt on that side of things. And, you know, as I say, back in the day, he, he pretty much wrote the instruction manual on designing RDS and breakers and things like that. So I used mm. to, I certainly, when I was training people or teaching people, I certainly referenced a lot of the, a lot of the things that Matt's taught me over the years, but yeah. And then, you know, I ended up here working for him and, you know, I've survived for a year so far. And like you said, it's, you know, we have a great dynamic down here. Just, I mean, people walk by all the time and they see, you know, two or three of us sitting in the office, just coming up with new, you know, we're just sitting around coming up with new things that we want to try in the lab. And it's just, you know, everyone kind of really enjoys coming to work every day. And we got a great team down here, you know, and Matt kind of brought us all together. Yeah. Again, it's a sign of a good leader, right? Creating the right team and, you know, leading by really just giving people control to do and create value as they see fit, which it seems like that's the way it's been done. And so I commend you guys. It's been, you know, as an account manager, I appreciate everything you do. It makes my job a heck of a lot easier. AES has come a long ways, even since Matt's come here. So I'm excited to see, you know, it's neat to see where we're at and excited to see where things go. And with that being said, everyone out there, we really appreciate the support. Hopefully everyone enjoyed the episode. If you have any questions, please add us to LinkedIn, send a message. And if you have any ideas for a show, or if you have any questions outside of what we talked about today, please let us know. And if you don't want to message us on LinkedIn, we have an email at the flowline podcast at aesfluids.com. And with that said, thanks everyone for listening until next time. See you guys. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.